Welcome to the Federalist Outpost. People don't realize that in World War II and the European Front, there were three different sides. History has always talked about the Allies and the Axis, the alliance between the United States, Great Britain, and Russia against Nazi Germany and Italy. But really, there were three sides. There was the United States and Great Britain, then Nazi Germany and Italy. And the third side were the communists in Russia, the Soviet Union. And really, when you looked at the three sides, you could see that there were three completely different points on the political spectrum. They were well represented by each of the sides. On the far left, you had the Soviets, who were communist, but at the time it would have been better described as Stalinism, a heavy form of socialist government in which the state controlled every aspect of its citizenry, the art and the culture, the economics, the education, everything was pre-planned in Soviet Russia. Nazi Germany was on the far right with Italy. And this is a country and a group of people who committed the Holocaust, killed 5.4 million or more Jews, in addition to killing as many of the Serbs and the Czechs. And this totalitarian approach that was taken by the Nazis was only different from the Soviets in the reasoning behind why they did what they did. And so you had this far left and this far right that adopted very similar approaches in Europe as they fought one another between 1942 and 1945. And then in the middle were the United States and Great Britain, two of the top tier examples of democracy that have existed over the course of the last thousand years. And they occupied that middle ground where I like to say that moderates exist. There were ideologies of all different sorts in both countries, particularly the United States, but they came together in order to be able to form a single government. But as the waning hours of 1945 and World War II were coming to a close, it became apparent that despite the fact we were going to be ending this massive conflict in Europe, there was a bigger war, or at least a longer war, that was going to be on the horizon between the Soviets and the democracies of the West. And this war starts before the fighting with Japan in the Pacific has ended. And it starts with the way that Berlin is broken up, the way that the Americans under Eisenhower waited a little bit longer to get to Berlin to allow the Russians to come in and effectively punish the Nazis for all of the atrocities that the Nazis had done to the Russians. And in this time, Russia starts looking towards these democracies with an eye to expanding their influence into these countries. And they start out using different methods for what eventually became the East Bloc countries, countries like the Ukraine and Austria and Hungary, uh, Czechoslovakia, the Baltic states, these small independent countries that were created after World War I as a buffer zone between Russia and Germany. And each of these little countries Many of them had democracies, but each of them had their own local political games. They had their own local political interests. And the Russians came in with this communism very, very quickly. They came in with secret police and they came in with new history books and new ways of learning things. And the first thing that they did was go after the education and the mass media 
And they said, okay, if we can control what people hear, they'll believe us. If we teach them that these things that we believe in are correct, then they'll believe it. They effectively believed that people were sheep. And in a couple of countries, they had some luck early on where they would run in a, a democratic election and the Communist Party would win a portion of the seats. But their wins were always short-lived. And in other instances, they didn't win at all because the local populations were going back to how they were before the war. They were ecstatic. Places like Poland were happy to get back to the pre-war in hopes that they would be able to rebuild. They didn't want a fundamental change of their politics and of their economic structure after the war. They wanted to go back to the way that it had been before the war. And the communists tried to change all of these different things and it didn't work. And so they ended up trying to force it. Eventually, they would get into different organizations and they would limit participation in organizations that were not pro-communism. They would go through and they would weed out dissenters and they would send them away. They would do forced relocations of populations in order to be able to clear out land for sympathetic populations to move into the same area. And in each one of these different instances, they eventually developed this crushing grip on dissent, on any type of voice that would not agree. And it's, it's embodied eventually with the Berlin Wall. And you listen to the different people of the 1960s talk about the communist threat. The ideas that were propagated by the communists would be popular for a little bit, but would ultimately result in dissension within their own ranks and people who would not agree with it, people who wanted to leave. And so they built the Berlin Wall as much to keep new ideas out as they did to keep their own population in. It was a symbol, but it was also a practical matter. It was an opportunity for them to be able to show their population that there was going to be punishment for dissent, even silent dissent. And it was there to show the West that they couldn't simply come in and meddle with what the communists had done in East Germany or in any of the East Bloc countries. During this period of time, Communism was always this threat to expand. It was something that we would fight in Korea about. It was something that we would eventually fight in Vietnam about. It was something that we would engage in all of these small little miniature wars over the years, trying to keep communism at bay. But it wasn't ever the armed conflicts that were the problem. It was the Cold War that was the problem. It was the transfer of ideas out of the East, out of uh, what eventually became Mao's China and what was communist Russia and the Soviet Union into democracies because democracies had this easy opening. They allowed dissent. They allowed free speech. They allowed uh, to some degree or another revisionist history where people would come in and say, no, no, no. You, you might think you knew what happened in World War II, but really you didn't know. Or you might think you know what happened in the revolutions in Russia in the, the late 19-teens, but really it was completely different. So Kennedy had this opportunity in, in history, frankly, and it wasn't one opportunity, it was many opportunities, but he had this opportunity to address it. And he talked about something that has significant bearing on what we're dealing with today. Here's a little clip of what he said. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy 
that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. It conducts the Cold War in short with a wartime discipline no democracy would ever hope or wish to match. Kennedy, of course, would not live to the end of the Cold War. But the fears that he had and the fears that he expressed in that particular speech and a dozen others were realized by society at large. Communism and the Soviet Union were obvious threats because you could see it. It was there on the map. It was there in the headlines. It was everywhere. And that's not the way that it is today. The eventual collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 put on display the folly of the communist system, but it wasn't a death blow to communism or to Stalinism or to severe socialism the way that it looked to be at the beginning of the 1990s. Instead, what it was, was an opportunity for rebirth, for reinvention, for rebranding. And, and that's what we've seen over the last 30 years, was something akin to what Apple did in the late 1990s when iMac came out, or what Domino's has done in the last decade, where they went from having the worst pizza in the country to some of the best pizza in the country. Communism has gone from the drab grays of Mao and Stalin or of Khrushchev or Kim Jong-il to the quirky, attractive Ocasio-Cortez or to the relatable, crazy uncle that is Bernie Sanders, the, the meme-worthy or the ugly sweater-worthy Bernie Sanders. But just like the designs behind Apple and Domino's, there's a design behind the rebrand of communism. And they know that the word communism is a bad thing, and so they don't call it communism anymore. They call it socialism because that's a, a little more acceptable without deviating too far from the message. But they're still using the same playbooks that they've always used, that they used way back in the late 1940s in the East Bloc countries. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at each of the communist or the socialist efforts in the big three areas. Education in youth groups is the first area. They always go after the young minds to shape them under the belief that if they shape them early, then they'll have dedicated people for life that believe in the system. The second one is mass media, because again, this is a group of people who like to drink their own Kool-Aid. They think that if they can put their message out to the masses, the masses will believe it because it's the only message that they're going to hear. And the last is the elimination of political dissent. However that looks, sometimes that's independent groups, sometimes it's censorship. Frequently, it's the elimination of the right side of the political spectrum, and eventually the elimination of the non-communist, the non-socialist left side of the political spectrum. 
So these three areas we're going to spend some time in to take a look at how they're doing the same efforts from 70 years ago today and what the plan is and where they're going to be going with that next. One other thing I wanted to talk about this week was about being a moderate. And being a moderate doesn't mean not taking positions or being neutral. It means taking reasonable, logical positions on things. And I think that one of the things that a lot of moderates have missed in the last 20 years is that they actually have a voice. We all have voices, but as a moderate, you have a voice, I have a voice. To be able to go out and advocate for those things that I think are reasonable uh, political positions or you know sports teams or anything else I want to, I shouldn't keep my mouth shut just because I'm concerned about what someone else might think of what is an otherwise reasonable and logical position. And I wanted to talk about it because it, I did one of those things where you post on Facebook, meaning well, and I'd post on the Gina Carano situation. And this is a character that my daughters uh, like quite a bit because she's a strong female character in Star Wars. And she's very much different from Padme or from Princess Leia. And so she gets kicked off because she makes a comparison to what the Nazis had done and the argument on the other side, I suppose, was that she was minimizing the Holocaust. I didn't get that from her tweet. I think that that argument is disingenuous. And, and that's that's my moderate take on it, is that her position was that you know the, the left wing was coming after the Republicans in the same way that the Nazis were going after uh, the Jews. Now, I, I think that that's probably not intended to be taken literally because there's no, no credible evidence to indicate that it is. But the concepts are, are related, and I think that's what Gina was going after. But all of that aside, about 2,500 years ago, the first meaningful democracy in, in Athens was in a crisis somewhat similar to ours, a little bit different because the subject matter was somewhat different. But in this time of crisis, they had a huge gap between the elite and the wealthy uh, and the poor. So you had the haves and the have-nots, which is something that we see in our, our society today. But the population had organized into these very polarized factions the way that ours has now. We've drawn our lines down Republican and, Republican and Democrat. They drew their lines at the time um, under, under these you know, rich versus poor. And at the heart of the matter was really this old set of laws that were written by a guy named Draco. He was a senator in Athens about 100 years before this new issue came. And he was the first person to write down laws that had previously only been orally passed down. And so he had written them, but they were extremely difficult when it came to how to handle disputes amongst parties. And certain components of it, like the homicide section of, of what Draco had written, were well accepted. But other things like debt and, and what we would view as sort of civil law today were very old school. And, and one of the things was that if you had owed a debt to someone else you couldn't pay, you were then an indentured servant to that person until you could repay the debt. And as you might imagine, it, you know the, the wages of a servant are not quite the wages of a free man and you end up not being able to repay that debt. So these people would go into almost lifetime servitude. And so the Athenians had, had looked at these laws of Draco, which, by the way, are, are where we get the term draconian from. And they said, we have to change it. We know we have to change it. Both sides of this argument stand to gain nothing 
by waging a war. Everybody stands to gain something, at least, if we can come to the middle and, and put together a new set of laws, something to govern reasonably in the place of these draconian laws of old. And so they picked a guy named Salon. And Salon was sort of a political theorist at the time. He was this figure that had very good ideas, almost a Thomas Jefferson-like type of character that could come in and draw the line between the two parties and be able to say, I'm going to defend the middle ground. He was the ultimate moderate at the time. And what he did was he wrote these laws and he ended up resolving this conflict between both sides in such a way that everybody got something out of it. And he was universally disliked by both sides because invariably he had taken something from one side or the other, and he was proud of it. One of the laws that's controversial um, was called Salon's Law on Stasis. It was recorded by Aristotle. There's some academic debate about whether or not it's actually something that Salon had come up with or if it had come up later. But it, the general concept was this. In times of civil strife, any person who failed to side with a faction would be disenfranchised from the city-state and left without citizenship. What that meant was that if there was a public discourse debate that was a significant one, that it wasn't one of those, you know, who's better than chiefs or the bucks kind of an argument, it was serious matters pertaining to state and direction in the country, something that we look at today in the things that, that have happened over the last five years. And Salon's position in this law was that you couldn't stay neutral because if you stayed neutral, you did not deserve to have a voice in what came afterwards. Everybody had to be a participant. And that didn't mean that you needed to side with one group or the other. It didn't say that there were only two sides to any argument. It left this idea that you should adopt a position, whatever that position was, because if you stayed neutral, you gave up your rights to participate in the process and to have a voice in how things were going to be changed moving forward. And I think that as a moderate, that's where we stand today. That's, that's an idea that we have forgotten and it's something that we've got to come back to. So I, I had posted about Gina and, and in an effort to try not to be uh, a hypocrite, I, someone had posted back about this and had essentially indicated that he thought I was an idiot. Um, because I had posted it and I was clearly misinformed and everything else. And I thought, you know what? This is where the line's got to be. It's something silly. It's on Facebook. It's not worth a ton of my time. But somebody's got to stand up and call these people out. And so he responded and I responded and we went back and forth. And the debate on his end stopped being logical. It wasn't evidence-based. It, it, was, it turned into what we call straw man attacks. He was after my character. And that was all he wanted to be after was my character. He wanted to to, uh, he didn't, but I'm sure he wanted to call me a racist or he wanted to call me some sort of bad name that would have this long connotation about my character. And I wouldn't let him do it. I kept calling him out on it. And, and that is a moderate is what we've got to continue to do because eventually his arguments were obviously paper thin and he went away. He left. And that's that type of pushback from the middle is what both wings, this, this fascist, far right wing and this communist far left wing that's Nazi Germany versus Soviet Russia, groups of people, that's what we've got to do, is we've got to push back in places that make sense. And we've got to do it in such a way that we're above reproach. 
If I'm going to argue with you about something, I'm going to make sure I've done my homework first. And I'm not going to get into an argument over things that frankly are just pure opinion. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. But there is objective truth out there. And when someone wants to ignore it in order to call you a name, all they're really looking to do is to shut you up, to make it so that you don't have a voice because they want to control how the language about the topic works. Just like the communists in the Eastern Bloc, just like Nazi Germany in the 1930s. So I hope you guys enjoyed this week's podcast. Uh, Like I said, the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about these different elements of how communism came into East Bloc Europe and into a number of different democracies. If you hated today's podcast, I am always happy to have hate mail because it gives me something else to talk about. Um, If you liked it, please subscribe. If you you didn't like it, but don't mind listening to it again, please subscribe again. Thanks, and y'all have a good week.